someday. Mommy Leone left a note on the door. She said, Sonny, don't move out to the country because you might not have the necessary bandwidth to listen to Stick to Wrestling. I want to thank Billy Joel for writing that song for his favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling. And thank you, Mama Leone, for having her priorities straight. Welcome to Stick to Wrestling. My name is John McAdam. If you give us 60 seconds, we perhaps indeed will give you a raw bone podcast. Sure, there are some good podcasts out there, but are they wicked good? No! Well, there you have it. No. I want to bring in now my convivial co-host, Mr. Sean Goodwin. Sean, how are you today? It's like we're the David San Martino of podcasts. Raw bone, as uh, Gorilla Monsoon always used to call them. We, we submit in the middle of a, of a match with Ron Shaw in Philadelphia for no apparent reason. We go off the script. Absolutely. Unpredictable. So, and since I'm here, it's Facebook time. So if you haven't been to the Facebook page yet, you're missing out. Like, if you want to know who the hell did Bob Backlund beat 40 years ago, we're the place to go. You can find out what the hell James Blears and Ernest Borgnine are doing together. Did Don Morocco ever join the village people? Why is Ricky Schroeder yelling at Terry Garvin? All this results around the world, people who have seen events from around the world, including one of the guys we have with us today, and we have uh, updates on our YouTube page, um, results, pictures, magazines, really cool guys, all the good things about Facebook without the unpleasant side effects. There you go. And I also want to thank that creep Mark Zuckerberg for making it Facebook available to us. And with that, I want to bring on our guest this week. He and I have been friends for like 25 years on the internet. This is the first day I've gotten to speak with him live. Mr. Chris Tabar. Chris, thank you for joining us. John, thanks for having me on. Guys, thank you. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's fine. It's great to finally be on. I know we've had some trouble working out the schedules since I'm on the West Coast, but it's great to be here and looking forward to talking about this show with you guys. Hey, no problem. And with that, this show is going to be, if you want to feel old, the Clash of the Champions, the historic Clash of the Champions 10, was 30 years ago this week. And, I mean, talk about just a crazy show where the course of the NWA was changed forever. Let's talk about what was going on before this show, coming into this show. Since around Thanksgiving 1989, so we're looking at about two, three months, Tully Blanchard, had been the subject of every wrestling conversation that I took part in. And this is life back in 89-90, where we would talk to each other on the phone and share information, and then the Observer would show up, you know, and, and you'd get the real scoop. But coming in, all that was talked about was what was going to happen with Tully Blanchard and the NWA. It was an ongoing saga. And about a week, maybe five days before the show, I had heard that Tully was coming in. He was going to make, and I heard from a good source that he was coming in. He was going to make his debut on this show. And as a result, the four horsemen were going to turn heel on Sting and Tully would be the catalyst on all of this. Sean, let me get your perspective on this. I mean, you weren't getting newsletters or anything. I mean, what was going on in your head coming into this show? Coming into the show, it's I was kind of in and out of the product at this point. I was getting, I will say this, I was getting very frustrated with their product at this point. They had been bad and they had been bad for a little while at this point. It just, and it wasn't the wrestler's problem either. So I'm sitting there, I, I had not heard about Tully till coming later, but I think Tully is one of the things that would have just been perfect for them at this point. Just like a breath of fresh air. Or, but I can't even say that because I can't complain about the wrestlers. The wrestlers aren't the problem here. 
Yeah, I to be honest with you, I really liked the product coming into this show. I thought it was getting stronger, it was getting better. Yes, mistakes were frequently being made, but if you looked at the overall big picture, I mean, the four horsemen were flying high. I mean, if they, when they went out for an interview, the place would go nuts over Flair, Sting, and Arn as baby faces, and yet they have a pay-per-view coming up where it's the Andersons against the Steiners, babyface versus babyface, and Sting versus Flair, babyface versus babyface. So I think the person sitting at home kind of knew something was up. Tabe, how about you? What if what did you were you thinking coming in? You know, I got to be honest. I thought they were kind of lost. I mean, you got the four horsemen coming in main eventing against Muda and Dragon Master, who belongs nowhere near a main event. And you know, I thought they'd kind of lost direction. I wasn't a big fan of the product in '89. I thought they kind of lost it after they sold to Turner in eight, late '88. So, and by this time, I had uh, I was getting ready to graduate from high school. It was just I'd kind of left the product behind, and it just was not a big appeal to me. You know, it's funny. You talk about getting ready to leave behind. I mean, I I got there about a year from then. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Sean. No, I just wanted to uh, to differentiate one thing. You're right. The product was good for one reason. The performers were good. You even get a great – not great, but a very good performance out of Buzz Sawyer here out of nowhere. I mean, he was actually pretty good. So the guys have been up from 89 up through 90. The guys have been working for the most part. My problem is, is that they are putting them in a place to fail each time. Like even the one great part of this show, which was that magnificent promo where only will you just let the guys be the guys. And that's why it worked as opposed to them having to stick their little finger into everything and then mess everything up. Every time they got involved in an angle, a character, or a person, by they, I mean the management, the brass, it gets messed up. So, yes, it was good because the, the performers, the wrestlers themselves are very good. But if I was a wrestler in that promotion at that point, I would want to kill somebody. I, I, just, I would have been out of my mind in frustration. Well, let me say this. There were a couple of wrestlers in the company, uh, Sting and Luger, who had been criticized for not being passionate enough. And these are two guys that, you know, they just kind of said, hey, I'm collecting a paycheck here. I'm not going to worry about what Jim Hurd is or isn't doing. want to throw this in there, too. I mean, coming in, Chris, you are correct that Dragon Master did not belong anywhere near a main event on a major card like this. I agree with you. Muda, yeah, he could have. Buzz Sawyer, believe it or not, he was on a roll coming into this. He and Arn Anderson had some matches on TV on their uh, Friday night show. They had one match. It just blew me away. It was like a four-star match. This Sawyer did a splash off the cage yeah. in this match. What the hell was that? that was 20 like, feet in the air. When he strike, hey, I know what? If it was 10, I'll give it to him. I saw him him, but what's, what's he lost? Well, didn't he do this later and then broke his arm, or was this the match where he broke his arm? The pay-per-view that was being built up towards on this show was the one where he came off the rose and he, it was just hideous. I, I, as soon as I saw it, it was obvious that he broke his wrist and that was basically the last we all ever saw of Buzz Sawyer. He'd be gone within a couple of years. Yeah, that, that sounds right. Yep. All right. Now I'm, I'm looking at my notes here. Tully Blanchard had been going back and forth with Jim Hurd about a contract. Now Tully had failed a drug test in the WWF. And of course, Jim Hurd, decides that he wants to make things complicated because of this failed drug test, or basically he now wants a discount on Tully Blanchard. He also wanted a discount 
on Arn Anderson, and he got one on the claim, listen to this, that, well, we wanted you guys as a tag team, Arn, and now that you're not a tag team, you're worth less. So they cut his pay, I think it was from $125,000 a year to $100,000 a year. How do you get more petty? This is what I'm talking about. They can't get out of their own way. It's like even when things are going right, they need to get themselves in there to mess it up. Yeah, I mean, twenty-five grand a year is nothing. That's five hundred dollars a week. It is nothing to this company. Yet we have to pickpocket Arn Anderson because it's of three thousand pieces with him. Maybe that'll help him. <laughs> uh, and now, so now you're in this complicated negotiation with Tully because. It's not linear. Well, Heard is telling Tully, hey, I can't give you more than Arn. Tully is like, well, then give Arn more. So it's, basically, it's really complicated. And on top of things, Tully Blanchard is running around telling people that he has an offer from Coca-Cola to be an executive there for, a, what a magic figure, $125,000 a year. Now, before anyone says that is patently false, it probably has about a 1% chance of being true. I know you're saying, wait a minute, this guy who graduated West Texas State long ago and has been a pro wrestler for the last 15 or so years is now getting an executive job for six figures. There's like a 1% chance that there's some Mark for Tully Blanchard out there who's going to give him this. Oh, no, I don't think this is impossible. I don't think this is impossible at all. What ha- uh, didn't, oh, God, what was his name? Didn't like Dick Murdoch end up with some sweetheart job with Coors? I had not heard that. I thought I heard at some point that Dick Murdoch had some ridiculously sweetheart job as a salesman with Coors. I mean, it ha- all you have to do is run into the one guy who saw you, you know, some guy who's an executive who saw you on TV and you're hooked up. It's like, you know, any number of like 60s football players who are big stars locally. And, you know, man, there's no chance Tully had a Coke job. Come on. <laughs> you know, Vice what? president in charge of morale and laundry. It stops at it. It stops just short of impossible, and that, that's what I'm saying. Is like there's like a maybe a one percent chance that this is true. Then comes the other ninety nine percent chance. Do you have any idea how many fluff, stupid jobs there at the Atlanta office of Coca Cola? I can't even possibly imagine. There's but there must be a there must be five hundred vice presidents for every stupid thing you could possibly imagine. Vice president for parking, vice president for you know um, asbestos uh, awareness. I mean, yeah, I'm sure they could find some dumbass job for him. It was a different world back then. It really was. Like now, you would not get away with that. Now every penny is counted. But back then, I'm telling you, it used to be a completely different world as far as just uh, you know man- resource management. Really? Have you ever seen the Barbarians at the Gate movie? <laughs> I have about not. The fall of N- about the fall of Nabisco. It kind of it, it tells you all about this stuff, about how they did stuff back then. Yeah, so like I said, I, I don't believe, I'm not saying I believe the story. I am saying I disbelieve the story, but I wouldn't completely 100% discount it. I'm saying there's like a one, maybe a 0.5% chance that this is legit, but it still makes me laugh. Totally yeah, exactly $125,000 from Coca-Cola. I don't know. But that's what was going on coming into this show. Tully Blanchard nonstop. When's he coming back? And I had gotten the word that he was coming back tonight. So, and like I said, I think the average fan kind of knew something was going on. 
Uh, let's start with the opening match. Dr. Death, Steve Williams against the Samoan Savage. And boy, did they have an impressive video to introduce Dr. Death coming into this. Sean, would you like to describe this nonsense? Does the video production department of WCW have any dignity left? I have seen videos in freshman college classes better than this was. I don't even know. First of all, they have a logo up that says Dr. Death. I showed this to my girlfriend. I'm like, am I nuts? Is this really bad? She was like, that's awful. They have a logo up that says Dr. Death prescription for, uh, what was it? Prescription for punishment. They can't even go prescription for pain. They got to make it more, you know. Then they have Doc, for some reason, he's an EMT. He goes over, he's some emergency. He, he probably just picks somebody off the street, throws them into the back of the ambulance, starts giving them C- CPR for like five minutes, and then says, driver, go. You'd like to think the driver left already, but okay. <laughs> And then we cut with Doc's face pressed up against the back of the ambulance looking at us. And then we cut to Doc getting no response coming to the ring, which I can't imagine why. Did he do something? Uh, No, they just had no idea what they were doing. Tame, share your thoughts on this wacky vignette. Well, I think it's brilliant to have Dr. Death saving a guy's life. I mean, come on. Is it? (laughs) That's just so stupid. And it's poorly done. My first note that I wrote down when I was look, watching the show is just how low budget everything felt. It feels like a, a late 90s ECW show with just no budget thrown together by minimum wage guys out of college or interns or something. Just terrible. But with ECW, you knew those were minimum wage guys who were interns who were terrible. You knew these guys had money and they were still screwing it up. And the aggravating part is that it was these videos because, all again, the wrestlers are fine. Even Buzz was putting out here. You're right with Lex and stuff like that. But, I mean, like Buzz and these guys, Tommy Rich we've talked about. The problem is that you, these are the videos that make you embarrassed to watch it with anybody else. Because this comes on and you're with somebody else. You're like, oh, God. And, and the other person looks at you and every stereotype comes flooding to, to their head. Like what an idiot you are for watching this. Well, you're setting up Dr. Death against Samoan Savages. These two hard-hitting heavyweight guys, and it's a joke vignette to set the whole thing up. <laughs> yep. They, they just have no idea what they're doing. I, I mean, and that, Shave, you hit it on the head. They needed to decide whether or not they were going to be like the WWF, which is a bad move, or to not be like the WWF. And they kept going back and forth between do we want to be WWF or not? And they just would not make up their mind. Steve Williams. I was saying this back in 1990. I was saying this back in 1987. He could have been a big money main eventer, maybe even a world champion. However, you would have had to present him as a heel, an overprivileged and underintelligent BMOC. The college jock that's a big tough guy who, oh, he couldn't make it in the NFL, so now he's, he's in wrestling. You know, pair him with Jim Cornette. It would have been perfect. But instead, they decided, apparently, that he was going to be their version of the WWF's Hacksaw Jim Duggan, except he is an EMT. It was, it was embarrassing. Yo, driver, go! Quick! He should never been allowed near a microphone. Yeah, I mean, unless, you know, just to get in a couple of words and, you know, okay, Steve, no. you just stand there and Jim Cornette's going to do the talking for you. No, promise. Make him like the Mongolian. Make him like the uh, where's he from? Um, the whatever stomper, the the Georgia stomp or whatever Mongolian. like that. Make him like yeah. Make him like Archie Goldie. No, I'm saying somebody other than the Mongolian stomper. Have him be a stomper from some other country. 
Ah, I see. The Oklahoma But somebody who doesn't talk. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. The Oklahoma stomper. Well, anyway, and let's talk a little bit about Simone Savage. Here's a guy who was main eventing Madison Square Garden five years and about 100 pounds earlier. And he was he was still, I mean, you could do something with the guy. They just couldn't figure, figure out what to do. A big reason he was main event in the Garden, he was getting the love off of Jimmy Snooker, though, who was over huge at that point. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, that's an anomaly. I'm just saying, you know, wow, here he, that's where he was. And here's where he is now on the opener of A Clash of the Champions. And he's there to put over Steve Williams. Just to clarify that the, um, the guy, Simone Savage, in question here is the Tonga kid. Yes. I kind of took that one for granted. But you're right, people. You know, that kind of does need to be spelled out. So what did you guys think of that match? It was fine. I mean, it was uh, my problem with it was the ending. That ending, they could not. What the hell was that? That helped nobody. That ending is terrible. First, you you had you look like that uh, that fat two was going to go over, and all of a sudden they had this goofy backslide at any out of nowhere. Maybe the weakest looking win I've ever seen Doc have. It made Doc look bad. It made the guy look bad. It made uh, fat two look bad. Just everyone looked bad in the whole thing. And how did the match end? A ten minute match, and somehow Humperdinck is sweating more than the two guys. <laughs> Well, you've got Williams who facing like a mid-card tag team guy. He just got done walking him around the ring with a press slam, and he beats him with a backslide. He can't knock the guy out with the stampede or or something powerful. It's got to be like a joke, you know, sneak in the pin kind of a thing. Ugh, no. The wrestlers were all very sensitive when it came to doing jobs. I mean, they're... They were sensitive to doing jobs at an indie in front of 200 people, let alone on WTBS. However, doing the job is part of the business, kids, and hold you know on, you have on. to know your role. Hold on, hold on, please, please tell me the argument that Tonga Kid gave as to why he should not be doing a job in the opener of a nationally televised show. They all come up with cliches and excuses. No, brother, I I don't oh, mind doing Lord. the job, just brother. I I don't want to look bad out there, brother. Like that's how it goes. Oh, man. So, I'm sorry. Then someone has to say there's the door. Well, yeah. Un- unfortunately, you know, the you just I can't mean, replace a mid card tag team guy every day of the week. That's you just can't <laughs> do that. <laughs> Unless you're Paul Amon. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, l- l- let me share an anecdote. In 1990, I was friends with a guy who was in the wrestling business. And this was back before cell phones. OK. We went up to Old Orchard Beach, and every hour he would he would go to the payphone and he would check his answering machine to make sure that no one has called him because he he couldn't you know that's how badly he wanted to get into the business. And you had guys you know slamming on the door in WCW begging to get in, and the guys who were already in needed to figure out that hey you know you, you can easily be replaced. But that was just the culture there. And again, it's, it's funny. I remember the wrestlers being kind of lazier a little bit in this era. Looking back on it, that's just not the truth. I mean, there were some guys, some guys at the top of the card, as you'd mentioned earlier. But, you know, even you, you're getting, you know, Tommy Rich's busted his ass. Uh, Buzz Sawyer's killing himself. And one after another, these guys are all going out there and putting out. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, it was just. That was the culture that no one wanted to ever do a job. Look at the WWF. No one argued with Vince McMahon, but WCW, it was always a problem getting someone to put someone else over clean. Management's terrible. Yeah. And the one problem is that, you know what? There was no central management within that company. It, 
It wasn't like the buck stopped at Jim Hurd. You could go around Jim Hurd. It has the efficiency of an Eastern European communist country. I mean, it's a big mess, the whole thing. And there's like, and there's always a committee. Yeah. There's always like 17 guys you got to answer to. Yeah, Turner I mean, was very into that lateral management thing, which, you know, I don't believe in. I believe in a chain of command. But anyway, should we talk about what comes up next? The WrestleWar 90 rap video. Oh, God. <laughs> you have to. <laughs> you have to, because after I saw the last video, I'm sitting there thinking, okay, that's the worst video I'm going to see. And I was wrong. Well, you can, and you can tell see me. it twice. They show yeah. it at least twice or three times. Ugh. Was, was, yeah, was, Ted, was Teddy Long actually the singer? I don't think so. They implied it the way they did the video. They had okay. Teddy point to himself like, you know, Ken Resnick at the beginning of the Wrestle Rock Rumble. And then they would go on to have him tell the story about all these other guys. I believe they showed the video twice during the Clash of the Champions, but they showed it, I mean, pretty much every commercial break on all of their shows <laughs> coming into this. So, I mean, I pretty much had that thing memorized February 1990. It's a, one of those kind of Blondie-esque rap songs. And at one point, it has the rhyme between biology and endocrinology. <laughs> yes, yeah, like those rap songs. songs. Yes. Uh, <laughs> it, I mean, I, it it's was about as good as the Super Bowl shuffle. Let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I think this on this night, I was gathered with some friends watching the show. And I believe this is the first time I saw that rap video. And I'll be honest, I laughed. I thought it was campy and fun the first time after the first 20 or 30 times it began to lose its appeal to me. But anyway. You're either going to laugh or melt into a puddle of embarrassment if you're around other people. I was around other, like, kind of non-wrestling fans. I was around a new girlfriend when this came on. Oh, yeah, I'd be dying. I'd be, like, (laughs) laughing as loud as humanly possible. Like, oh, yeah, I'm in on the joke. (laughs) It's like, welcome to the jungle, baby. (laughs) Anyway. Now we get the big angle. One of the, really, if you think about it, one of the biggest angles they ever did, we have Arn Anderson, Ole Anderson, Ric Flair, and Sting come to the ring. The Four Horsemen. Crowd's going nuts. They love the Four Horsemen. And Ole Anderson gets right to it. He just says, and it came across so naturally. I loved this interview. A lot of people didn't. Ole's just like, all right, we got something to say. Sting, you're out. You're done. You're, you either quit. You either give up your title shot or we're going to hurt you bad. And it was like, and Ric Flair was like, Sting, we tried to, and Ole's like, no, you're too easy. Sting, you're gone. It was awesome. What did you guys think, Chris? I thought, I thought Ole kind of rolled over Terry Funk and Ric Flair in this, and, yeah. and at the same time, didn't really deliver. It felt like it should have been more dramatic, and it wasn't. And he kind of punked Terry Funk and Ric Flair in the process, made Ric Flair look weak, made Terry look weak. Uh, I mean, overall, the segment worked, but I just didn't like the way Ole handled it. Okay, that's that's fine. Show what are your thoughts? I'm the exact opposite. I loved it for the uh, well. Uh, the one thing I didn't love about it was the timing. Why are you putting it there? You just killed your main event dead. I mean, it, it, that was the funny part when you got to the main event and everyone in the crowd's like, "What? What are we supposed to do?" Yeah. Um. But uh, as far as the, the the reason I liked it was because first of all, Oli was channeling. They basically did a redo of Oli's promo with Thunderbolt Patterson a few years earlier. When he basically said, you're getting a walk this time, but this is it. Now, everybody in God's green earth knew this was coming. So there's really no point in having a surprise. The second Sting agreed to the title match on the 25th, two weeks later, 
You knew this was coming, 3B Slater. You knew this was coming. So you, you, ha- you can't do it like it's going to be a surprise. Because if you honestly took this as a surprise, I don't know what to say. Everyone knew this was coming. And so the way Ole did it, I liked. Because it was kind of just, he, he rationalized it. And then having Flair out of it was good too. Because you're still held up as like, was Flair behind this? Or is this an Ole thing? So it adds a little extra drama in that perspective. But you had to do something to mix it up. Because it, it was the, the worst kept secret in the world. Yeah, I could see other ways of them doing it, but I mean, even if you were, you know, not a newsletter person or something, you had to know that something was up. And by the way, the reason why this interview maybe came across as a bit more clumsy or unscripted than it should have been, perhaps, is that they found out that morning that Tully wasn't coming in. The story that I heard was that Tully and Jim Hurd came to an agreement on, you know, a contract. It got faxed to Tully, and Tully claims that Hurd just changed the number on him. And that's the story I heard. Tully Blanchard, if you're listening and that's not true, I apologize, but that's basically what I've heard over the last over the last 30 years, that Tully got the fax in the morning, looked over it, and said, no, this isn't what we agreed to. It's also possible, because I know how things go in the wrestling world, that Tully could have just said, hey, you're counting on me being there tonight, right? Well, I want more money. Now, I'm not saying that happened. I'm just saying I, that's a possibility. Yeah, both of those are very plausible, knowing those two guys. Jim Hurd never was shy about lowballing people. And, of course, Tully was you know, Mr. Reliable all the time. Mm. We didn't know it at the time. Tully Blanche's career was basically over. Would it have been over if he took the money and came in? No, it would not have been. He probably would have had another 10 years left in him. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, what did Arn have? Arn lasted all the way into the Nitro era until he got hurt. He had his run in Smoky Mountain. Tully would have had all of that. Yeah, at least, yeah, I agree with you. So, yeah, it was just a, a bit of a shock to the system. We didn't know it, but Tully was done. He had a couple of matches in ECW. He had an old-timers match with WCW in, like, 95, which was, you know, hard for me to swallow. But, yeah, Tully was done. and But he was supposed to be part of the angle. They found out that day that, no, we got to do something different. And this is what they came up with on the fly. Yeah, I don't count the 1995 Tully. And by the way, if Tully does think we've said anything that's not correct, he can feel free to come on here anytime he likes. <laughs> yeah, he really. the whole story, and he has all the time he could possibly want. If he, so if Tully does want to, this is going to end up being about some kind of a, it, it always is, uh, either about guaranteed money or a bonus. This is what happened with uh, Harley coming in. Remember they had the whole thing where Harley was, they were saying Harley was holding up Crockett for 25000 and it ended up being the, uh, the 25000 for the NWA title deposit. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, yeah, Harley, well, that's, that's a whole other show in and of itself. But oh, no, no, I, I'm, saying, but I'm saying that that's how the interpretation gets put on these things, whether it was, uh, they got screwed or not. Yeah. One thing I've got in my notes, too, is like Ric Flair, uh, Arn and Ole are holding Sting and, and Flair is slapping Sting around and Flair starts screaming, get out of my life at Sting. I thought that was the greatest thing ever. <laughs> but that's also a good reason why you want to have Ole there, because you can't have Flair explode. Well, he probably could, but you don't want to have Flair explode for 20 minutes. So you want to see him building up. And then when the whole thing hits, then let him explode. So let Ole do the explaining part of it, and then Flair could flip out afterwards. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people complain about the modern product, how the the interviews are all scripted. And I, I get that. I also hope those people get that USA Network is not just going to have a pro wrestler go on their, on their network and say whatever they want with a hot mic. 
But it was I, th- I thought this was a really fun segment because it all came across as very uh, unplanned with only just cutting Flair off and, and Sting, you know, him just telling Sting to shut up. And it, it, it almost it came across as real life as opposed to pro wrestling. No, I thought I thought it was the best thing in the show by far. Uh, I mean, there's really nothing else to it. And the reason it was so good is because and you probably explained it. They didn't have enough time to actually fix something. It happened so late that they had to ad lib it. So that left it into the hands of the professionals. There you go. Tabe, any other thoughts on this segment? I love the beatdown by the, at the end with Flair slapping him around because he just wound up and blasted him multiple times. I love that. <laughs> the beatdown was great. The stuff before, I didn't really care for, but the beatdown was great. And then the smack right at the end before he spikes the microphone. That was good stuff. That was good stuff. <laughs> by the way, this show is available on WWE Network. It. I mean, not to go on a, on a sidetrack, but my God, they make everything so hard to find now, now that they've reformatted it. I spent 10 minutes looking for this thing yesterday. I know, it's terrible. The new website design's te- awful. Yuck. But anyway, next up is Brian Pillman and Tom Zank against the Mod Squad. There have been complaints about the Clash specials having too many matches, but and this match you would think would be unnecessary, but it served as a backup for Jim Ross and Jim Cornette to react to what just happened. So I thought I thought it was a good thing to have that padding in there. Sean, give me your thoughts. Yeah, I, I guess it's just I, I'm just not really into the Blood Squad too much. Uh, they had they were in Memphis and they didn't really get over there either. Uh, basically, if you're trying to imagine the Mod Squad, picture the basically the um, the Village People as wrestlers. Yeah, the the two uh, cops from the Village People, and they're supposed yeah. to be their gimmick was that they were police officers in New Orleans, and they got kicked off the squad for police brutality and OMG. If you get kicked off the New Orleans Police Department, you must be a really bad guy. Dave, give me some thoughts from you. I thought the match was pretty mediocre. I hated the mod squad. I didn't like them. They were, they'd been around on TBS multiple times under different names. And I thought they always kind of stunk. And then they made them the mod squad. They left. They came back. And this was a throwaway match. And the only note that I wrote down about this match was at the end during the finish when uh, Brian Pillman does a drop kick to protect the pin. And it's like Stan Lane level of kicking skill because he barely gets to the waist level of the mod yeah. squad guy that he, that he drop kicks. I thought it was pretty hilarious. Uh, you can tell how much you can tell how much importance they had in this match. The fact that Ross and Corny basically talked about the matches that just happened, the incident that just happened throughout the entire portion of this match. Well, they did that through the whole show. I that was something. It, it kind of felt like a Nitro thing where they because they're talking about what's not on the screen the whole show after the breakup. And I guess it's, it, it, I get it, but at the same time, it gets annoying after a while. Yeah, the, the Stan Lane kick reference, I love that. Just right there. You'd think Stan would look at himself wrestling and say, maybe I shouldn't do that anymore because it looks awful, but he wouldn't stop doing it. But anyway, yeah, like I said, I think that this is the one time where I think it was good that you had something non-consequential going on so that you could talk about what just happened because what just happened was huge. But anyway, a uh, friend of the show, Jeff Sugg, asked, why is Brian Pillman not a bigger part of this show or the plans moving forward with the desperate need for babyface help? Am I, number one, after the Halloween Havoc match from October 89 with Lex Luger, it, to me, it almost felt like they kind of gave up on Brian Pillman. Sean, what do you think? 
Well, I mean, I could give the standard answer I give for everything on this, which is they're just utterly incompetent. But uh, just to mix it up, um, what I'll say is that basically you needed somebody who actually could perform a match here in this in, the, in this match. I mean, you had to have some guy who could be somewhat compelling for the other three. You, I mean, you had you couldn't just have like four stiffs. So, I mean, having Pillman is the only thing about this match that's worth watching. I mean, despite the fact that. Uh, that Chris was right about that kick, but I mean, he is his, you know, his Ricky Morton stuff. You know, this is the, he was the only reason this match was even watchable. Yeah, it, it felt like they were de-emphasizing Pillman a little bit. Um, even though the tag team of Pillman and Zank got a little bit of a push, and they did have a fun feud with the Midnight Express, I thought. Uh, what are you going to yeah. do with Pillman though? He was so he was so much smaller than all the other mid all the other main event singles guys. He's just not a realistic U.S. champ, maybe a TV champion. I mean, he just isn't. I think he's out of place. And putting him at, maybe at the top of the card as a tag team guy is the place to put him. But you know, he's not going to get there with a guy like Zank. Right. Zank, you know, Zank gets rolled on by a lot of people, and for good reason. I always thought we we had a, basically a whole show about this, okay, maybe a year ago, mm-hmm. on how I thought Tom Zank was pushable. They just pushed him mm-hmm. wrong. But as a tag team, as a heel, yeah, and not as a who, face, as a heel who never talks. Give, give him somebody to talk for him because he, ugh, no. I mean, charisma. He'd be okay if you let that natural smugness come out. I think that would work okay. But as a baby face, oh god, Dave, I, I've been around Tom Zank. I was around him a couple of times. He's the funny. He was the funniest guy in the world. He was so smug, and he was such such a jerk. It, it was wonderful. It was hilarious. Well, if you just let him be that on TV, he would have been yeah. great. He never showed that. Yeah, he had, he had all the personality in the world online and after he retired, but yeah, not a not even a drop of that. He was like Al Perez on TV. Absolutely no charisma whatsoever. Because they refused to ever use him as a heel for some reason. Because he was a really good-looking guy. I mean, he had GQ looks. He had a, he won uh, Mr. Minnesota in bodybuilding. So you think you have this, you know, this, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, this heartthrob guy. But, you know, and girls liked him, but he just never, that's the thing. Girls were not your audience. Guys were your audience. Like it you or just not. Described, you just described Lex Luger. Exactly. Except they already uh, had Lex Luger. I know, but he's a heel too. I mean, I, I, you, again, this is once again them not pl- using their guys to their strengths. They, well, we'll get more into this later, but they were using Lex Luger perfectly right around this time. Yeah. And naturally, they stopped using him that way about two weeks later. But anyway, next up, Mil Mascaris against Cactus Jack Manson. My first reaction is, wow, it's 1990 and a corporate entity like WTBS is letting this guy call himself Manson. Uh, just as a uh, uh, point of clarification, uh, this is the match that Foley went off on in a great deal of detail in his first book, uh, where he basically kind of went off on Mill for not cooperating as much as he should have. And I, I do have a small correction. According to Gary Michael Capetta t- that night, it was Captain jack manson not yes <laughs> just just to be clear because that makes it better <laughs> exactly <laughs> it's just so stupid they're like making changes for no yeah how about we make a change and not make it better but we'll make a change our second billy joel reference of the evening and first of all mill does not have to wear the same tights from 1972 
Okay? No one's going to believe he has a 22-inch waist. He walks out there with the Ken Lucas, Robert Mitchum gut-sucking technique. I mean, that was bad. You could see his rib cages, just all, like all the rib cage, just from him sucking in his gut that bad. I, it was, dude, get a bigger pair of tights. I, you know, I was looking for, I, I watched the show yesterday, first time I watched it in, in its entirety, probably until since the, the day that it had aired. And as soon as I saw that match, I remembered, oh yeah, Mick Foley went off on Mil Mascaris in his book over this match. I couldn't find the book. I wanted to like, you know, reference that, and I just couldn't find the book. I have it somewhere. Now, this match is famous for a... And I'm sitting there wondering as I was getting ready to watch this, is this bump going to hold up? Yep. Most oh, certainly boy. did. Oh, God. It, it was, what it is, it was the sound. Yeah. It, cracking it, his head it was, on the concrete. Oh, oh God, oh. that sound. It sounded like a, like a chunk of steak getting thrown on the concrete. That you know, slapping sound. In 30 years later, maybe it's even worse because now we know how much of a yeah. like all about concussions and stuff like that and how serious that stuff is. And man, you look at the guy and you're like, good Lord, he could have just died right there. That was horrible. Of course, he did that bump every night. Yeah. Oh, no, he didn't. Oh, he oh, didn't? Yeah. Oh, no, Mick Foley picked his spots with okay. that bump. Okay. Can I tell you about the first time I saw him do that bump? I was in Memphis in 1988 and he did that bump in the Mid South Coliseum. Right in front of, what a coincidence, Dave Meltzer. He knew where Meltzer was, and he did it on that side of the ring. Always a smart businessman. I will, just again, so people, I don't know, I'm assuming everyone knows what we're talking about, but Mick called it the nasty plunge. And that's because there used to be an old commercial back in the 70s and 80s where the last bit of the commercial would be someone drinking the tea and going backwards into a pool. Well, Mick did that exact same thing going off the apron, except... Landing on, by the way, how bad does the other guys look having to use the mats like Sullivan? And all of a sudden, there's Mick taking that nasty bump over the, uh, you know. So he goes over the padding, head first, backwards on the concrete. It makes a horrific sound. And did Cornette know he was going to do that ahead of time? Because he went nuts. Uh, I don't think so. Was that the first time you ever saw that? It might have been. Um, I remember the story uh, Mick Foley told about beating Jim Cornette for the first time, and Cornette was familiar with him. And he's like, "God damn, you're still alive! Unbelievable!" I, I like it. You you can usually tell when Jim is acting, even as good as he can be. Uh, at that point, he kind of lost a little bit. Oh yeah. I mean, let me share a story. I mean, I, I was watching it with a bunch of people, like I said, uh, a new girlfriend and one of my friends and his girlfriend and my new girlfriend saw this and she was horrified. She was like, you know, the same reaction everyone had like, Oh my God, you know, is he seriously hurt? He's getting up. And my friend's girlfriend is, ah, no, they know how to land. Don't worry about that stuff. And just two people had totally polar opposite reactions and they were both dead wrong. Because that hurts, and there's there's no such thing as knowing how to land, but landing like that. Was this the last year he did that, I think? Uh, I don't, that's a good question, I don't know. He, it probably was the last time he did it, because if you do it in a Clash of the Champions, what's the point of doing it again? Yeah, I mean, it just, I, you will, I, I, I will see him, like, fall off of cages, and it does not look as bad as that did. Or sound. Again, it's a sound. You that can't sound? replicate that horrible sound. Yeah, that's that thud. It's just, oh, and it's tough to watch. And I, yeah, and it, was, I, it was tough to watch yesterday, and I knew it was coming, and it was tough to watch. It, I, I still was, like, taken aback, even though I knew it was coming. 
I looked away and it didn't matter because I could still hear the sound. And I was like, oh, and I got it anyway. Oh, that's I, that, again. The best is that slapping sound. It was awful. But I did like the fact that he brought a book to the ring. The book was titled, I am in urgent need of advice. <laughs> I actually went on Amazon to try and find that book. I could not Get out find of it. here. <laughs> I, I swear. <laughs> It was like this, like early seventies, late sixties, like self-help books that were all the rage back then. I'll tell you something, Mick Foley. He was a guy that, like you, like Chris, you were talking about with Pillman. Pillman, we all thought had a ceiling, and Pillman rose above that ceiling. Cactus Jack did the same. If someone had told me on this night that, yeah, about eight years from now he'll be WWF champion, I would have said absolutely no way. Oh, it's one of the smartest you're ever going to see as far as that goes, as far as like the political putting himself in the right position, taking advantage of opportunities. Oh, yeah. Oh, I mean, I, I, say what you want about his in-ring work, which, you know, yeah, depending on the day. I, yeah, I, depending on what he's doing, like mind games with Shawn Michaels, I thought that was great. But when it's just gratuitous violence that ECW was rolling out at the end, then no, I, I, I'm off board on that. With that said, he always seemed to put himself in a position to succeed, you know, outside of when they just screwed him in WCW. So that may have been the lesson. A bunch of guys learned how to avoid getting screwed by the management. Yeah. I mean, you know, Mick Foley, here's a guy who left WCW on his own, just said, I've had enough. I'm going home. I don't care what happens next. This is a place where, you know, once you got on the payroll, you would be you would be collecting checks for life. They just forget to stop sending you well, checks. Well, wait a minute. Wasn't there an incident that kind of led to his departure involving the tag team championships? No. Uh, I mean, that he, he brought, he'd, already, he'd already decided to leave when that happened. Okay, because I there was a uh, thing on ECW when he had the um, one of the tag team belts, and he basically said it was worthless or something like that. Hey, he spit on it. He got a lot of yeah. heat for that, but he had, okay. he had already decided to leave when okay. that happened. Didn't he okay. leave twice? Because didn't he leave after like an early late ninety or something like that, and then he came back and was around for the Vader thing in ninety three and ninety four. Yeah, he did leave twice. Um, I'm trying to think of exactly when he left towards the end of this run, but I, he, I think he was gone by the summertime. I was at the, as a matter of fact, I was at the was it nineteen ninety or ninety? I was at the ninety one Great American Bash in Baltimore, and he was there, and you know, people were saying hi to him. To uh, Mick's point about it being um, about him not cooperating, and watching this, I'm not sure that's the issue. I think it's a style issue. I just think neither one of these guys knows what to do with the other guy. To me, it looked like Mill was. I think I thought Mill was just doing his stuff, and Mick was just hell bent on getting his spots in. He did the right. the falling over the chair thing, and Mill's just like, I don't know what to do with this guy. <laughs> and why would Mill give sell for him anyway? He's, they're they're completely different positions. They brought Mill in as a legend. For no, I mean, I don't even know why he was there. I guess because he's Latin and he, it's Texas. I don't know. And then, you know, it's not like Mick's going to just going to go over with a ton of offense. It just didn't make any sense. I mean, no, it didn't. And Moscow has gotten a lot of heat over this match as time has gone on. And I'm kind of on Mill's side here. It's like, look, he's there making a special appearance. He's a legend, like him or not. He was willing to come on the show and be part of it. We're all like, wow, Mil Masker is cool. And Chris, you're right. I mean, Foley was just hell-bent about getting his spots in. And Foley didn't like it when Fla- Ric Flair was the booker and Foley talked about this. He's like, Mick, this match isn't about you. It's about Mil Masker. And it was. It's just who they were at the time. 
Yeah, but Mick's not a fool. He knows if he gets that bump in, it's not going to be. See, this is a spot where Mill- Rick's sitting there saying it's not about you. Mick knows it's about him. Second, he hits that spot. No matter what Neil does after that, doesn't matter. No one's going to remember that. They're just going to remember the spot, which is exactly well, what happened. So he gets the spot in, but, he, but then does he have to spend the next 20 years bashing Maskers for being uncooperative? No, that, no that's, that's just petty. That's, a, that's out of line. He, and he's wrong. Maskers did nothing wrong in this match. Yeah, it's I wrong, am with but that's 100%. Hard. I agree with you too, but that's how some of these guys are wired. When you when you're that uber competitive, uber driven kind of person, like look at Jordan. He still he goes to his Hall of Fame speech. He's still trashing his poor junior high coach. <laughs> I mean, that's uh, these guys are just wired different. The old Mick Foley, Michael Jordan comparison. <laughs> okay, I, I, good. I'm glad you brought that up now because someone else would have brought it up. I'm not comparing the two. I'm saying the uber competitive mentality will sometimes make you see things that aren't there. No, I, I hear you. And you're right. You know, uh, Foley kind of went into business for himself here. And he spent, Chris is right, he spent the next 20 years complaining about it. Yeah. It's like, look, you were the guy, you were the mod squad of this match. And, and give him credit, he was, he was smart enough to get around that. But he's convinced everybody. <laughs> Again, this is part of his genius. He has convinced everybody in the world that Vic was supposed to be the showcase here and that Mill wasn't playing along. Yeah, and as far as Bowley leaving, I mean, he was gone shortly after this. I know he was gone by, like, summer of 1990, and he was gone because Flair was the booker now, and Flair just didn't see any value in him or saw very little value in him. And Oli was the booker afterwards, and you can, you know, fill in the sentence, Oli doesn't see uh, value in guys like Mick Foley. Who did at that time? Jeez, the the guys in the uh, tri-state, uh, wrestling promotion, uh, <laughs> Joel Goodhart did. You know, I, mean, I, I did, but I, like I said, I thought he was a guy who had a low ceiling, and he proved me wrong. There was no measure for drive. I mean, there's just there's no measure for someone who's just not going to give up no matter what. Yeah, I mean, Mick Foley. I, you know, I was talking about his book. I probably have to read it again soon because it was so good. I mean, he talked about driving from Long Island to Pittsburgh, which is 400 yeah. miles. Just That's the comparison I'm making. That, yeah, that crazy drive. Yeah, just to, to do go to wrestling school for one day, and then yeah. he showed up one day when he forgot that, oh, yeah, we're not doing it this week, so he drove to Pittsburgh for nothing. But anyway, so then after the match, in case we think things can't get any worse, they have this band performing, I guess, between the matches, and Cactus Jack is all upset. Now he's just terrorizing random people, including dudes in the band. And the drummer, who is an indie wrestler, gets up and starts fighting Cactus Jack and holding his own, which I thought was absolutely horrible. JT Southern has never been in WCW before this? Uh, to my knowledge, I, I'm pretty sure he had not been. Uh, okay, he's he, he was more than a little kind of an indie guy. He was a reasonably known guy. If you've seen the mags, he was in there occasionally. Uh, he's in his wrestling tights. Yeah, we why is the drummer? <laughs> why is the drummer in his wrestling tights? They couldn't have thrown a pair of jeans on the guy? Believe it or not, especially in the music business, there were guys running around dressed like that. A hand on my heart, it's 1990, the heavy metal era is coming near its end and you would you would see guys at the mall like one guy at the mall like over the top dressed like that with a sequence on the pants it's at least sort of believable sort of about as believable as tully having a coke job <laughs> a coca-cola job i 
I believe way yes, more than Tully had a Coca-Cola job. job. <laughs> Tully might have had a Coke job. Maybe not Coca-Cola. <laughs> Coca, yeah. <laughs> Maybe he misunderstood. <laughs> exactly. But what's the point of even doing this brawl? I mean, you would think that's the way they would introduce. They were calling him Wolf, the, the drummer. They weren't calling him JT Southern. They were calling him Wolf something like they knew who he was. So, I mean, if they were introducing a character that way, okay, it's a little WWF-y for my taste, but I can see it. But they weren't even doing that. Did he ever appear again? No. That's like, I mean, that makes it doubly stupid. Hey, we have a drummer with tights on who beats up one of our guys on the roster and he disappears. Yeah. Oh, that's a good, that's a good look. I seem to have this memory of them doing stuff with Foley the first time through where he, they're just emphasizing how crazy he is. And so maybe that's what they're going for. Like, Oh, look how wacko he is. He's attacking the band. It's just stupid. No wonder he hates them. This is the thing he should be mad about. Not what happened with Mil Mascaris. The fact that they have some random drummer smack him around. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, I mean, he didn't smack him around, but he, he held his own. Now, what, what they yeah. could have done, what they should have done, maybe what they planned on doing, is having this guy on TV the next week and saying, look, yeah, he's a drummer for a band, but he's also a wrestler, folks, and, you know, just bring bring him on that way. Yeah, this guy has been wrestling independence. His name is JT Southern, or give him whatever name you want to give him, but the guy disappeared. Did Mick leave soon afterwards, and they just end up cutting off the whole thing? Oh, it was never mentioned afterwards. That's what makes it dumb. <laughs> or dumber. And yeah, it just says that he was in the thing. I'm looking at uh, like a, a, a Wikipedia page. And they just mentioned that Mil Mascara's Cactus Jack Bands and the Tough Guys, that was the band name. And then after that, they go, he goes to Japan. The tough like guys. a year later. <laughs> oh, oh these man. guys are so stupid. It's painful. All right. Next up is Kevin Sullivan versus Norman in a Falls Count Anywhere match. Now, this is when it really hit me, where I was getting kind of tired of this. Norman shows up, and he's wearing a bandana with, like, the Texas State flag on it, and they're doing, like, this is when it got old to me. They were doing an Old West theme of the entire show because they're in Corpus Christi, Texas, and it was just so hokey and so soccer mom of them it's like having a show in Boston, and it's going to be like a pilgrim theme. Give me a break. It was just so dumb. The best part about the match was when Norman was walking to the ring, and he's handing out stuff. And Cody goes, what a nice guy. Norman's handing out food stamps on his way to the ring. Ross goes, those are Valentines. <laughs> Corny, kept, match. Corny kept trying to get in, like, Mexican jokes. And Jim Ross would just talk right over him, just going, okay, there's a big drop kick, and it just wouldn't let him do it, and saving him from it. So, which is a good uh, excuse for having things scripted. The only other thing I noted in this match was the fact that, again, it was like WWF rules, where the entire match was in the ring for the most part. Finally, they made their way to the end. They both went into the ladies' bathroom, and they stole an ending from the Honeymooners. I am unfamiliar with this ending. I am certain... There was uh, Ralph got into some issue with this guy, and they he broke into the house. And he was going to bring Ralph into the other room, big, huge guy, going to bring into Ralph in the bedroom and beat him up. And all you hear in the other room was smacking around and punches. And all of a sudden, they open the door. The guy walks out. The the guy who was supposed to beat up Ralph and falls flat in his face. And then Ralph comes out the winner. All right, it was Ralph. the exact same thing that happened here. I'm picturing Kevin Sullivan watching the Honeymooners the night before. 
<laughs> Way to go, Ralphie boy. Yeah. I had two thoughts. Uh, so the first was that th- this is this match is a perfect example of why I can't stand Kevin Sullivan because he's just in there stiffing the crap out of Norman left and right, just smacking him up and down one side and then the other. And the second thing was that they went as soon as they went behind the curtains, the entire crowd just booed like crazy. Yes. Like they just completely crapped on it because they know they're going to get cheated out of the finish. I love the way the WWF would do, like when they had Slaughter and Iron Sheik and Madison Square Garden doing false count anywhere. They stayed in the ring area. They did pinfalls outside the ring, but the final was, was right smack in the middle instead of just screwing the fans with a finish in the bathroom that nobody sees. That's just, uh, no, just not the right way to do it. They're, they're bring- trying to out WWF the WWF, and it's not the direction they should have been going in. And you bring up a good point. This is one of the good or the early examples of them basically completely disrespecting our live crowd, which would be a theme later on. This is before the days, right before the days, when they would have a television screen up so that the live crowd could see what was going on. Like these guys just went to the back and the live crowd didn't see anything else from there. And yes, they booed heavily. Yeah, this crowd was not pleased. For most of the night, outside of the the flare and uh, sting stuff. No, and you know what? Going back to that, I mean, they started booing the horsemen, which I w- I was surprised, but I'm like, wow, maybe the horseman will get over his heels. But it's just one crowd after it just happened, and the, the crowds kept cheering Ric Flair. And Sting was over right here, at least with this crowd. The one thing about this stadium is that uh, I was looking up, it's, um, oh, what was it? It, it held 3,000. That seems like it a really, small stadium for them. I mean, you know what? There's something to be said about that in a good way, because the last thing you want is empty seats on live TV. It was the Corpus Christi Memorial uh, Coliseum. Drew 3,000, 30,000 gate. Okay. Uh, it's just, again, it, it, it leads me in more into the thinking of them disrespecting the live crowds. I mean, maybe I, I was watching that. I would not have guessed 3000. I would have guessed like six, 7,000 and they sold it out. You know, good for them. I, I think that's it, it's better to have 3000 sold out than 5000 in an 8000 seat arena. Agreed. Oh, I'll agree with that, too. It's just, but it's the focus is on the TV. And that that's a very big point you just made, because wrestling especially WCW is moving more from being a touring company, a a business based on touring and more based on television. They're putting out, you know, big matches on, you know, for free on television, which is something that wrestling hadn't done since before Saturday night main event, 1985 for the most part. Next up, we have Terry Funk interviewing Lex Luger. Tabe, give us your thoughts I thought Terry was pretty bad in the horseman segment and he's just, I've, I've said before that I can't stand funk in this era of WCW. I thought he ruined Russell war 89. I thought he was terrible all through 89 other than in the ring. Of course, he's awesome in the ring and it just shows here tuxedo. Terry just completely lost. Lex Luger has no idea what to do with him. They're completely clashing the whole way. Then you got Luger saying that he's been given allocades instead of accolades. And it's just, a train wreck from start to finish and just uh, embarrassing. It's just, it's not even embarrassing in a fun way. It's just embarrassing because it's so incompetent. I agree with you. And here's the thing. Terry Funk 
if you're a pro wrestler, you learn how to get over. If you're an interviewer, you're supposed to get someone else over. And that's why I thought Terry was just really bad in that role as an interviewer. Luger was was sky high at this point in his career. He was really at his apex. And you're right. Luger did not know what to do with Terry Funk. Sean, give us your thoughts. Another style issue here between Lex and Terry. And another problem is that Terry's just weird here today. I mean, I don't mean like in this whole era, but here. Uh, like when they started the show, he gets way too happy. Yeah. You know, he's like, hey, everybody, it's Terry Funk. He, it, it was like he was Ron Papil. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, was he on something? Or is there like, it was almost like someone went to him and say, Terry, we need you to be happier. And Terry's like, oh, you want me to be happier? Okay. And he decides to do his Jack Nicholson bit. I mean, it was like, he felt like Jack Nicholson in The Shining, kind of like, I'm happy. I'm happy. I was waiting for him to kill somebody, just to just like get the plastic bag out and start chasing somebody around. He was Jack Nicholson in The Shining on this night. I never thought of that. That's who he was. That's great. It just was something was just a little off. There was like part of this story I'm not getting. So my question is, why is he even doing interviews in the first place? Was he hurt? Why wasn't he in the ring? He retired. He retired after the I Quit match, uh, November 1989. Now you're wrong. He retired in 1983. You can't be. No, he did. He couldn't possibly have retired in '89. <laughs> uh, welcome, to, welcome to Terry Funk wrestling. <laughs> exactly. I mean, so, but but why retire? Was he just done? Because he was how old? He wasn't even 50 years old at this point. He was 45, 46, um, which. It back then was considered old for a wrestler. He had bad knees. When Terry Funk first came in, he came in as an announcer in, in 1989. And then they did the angle with Flair. Supposedly, from the beginning, the plan was that Terry Funk was going to have his run with Ric Flair, retire, and be a commentator for WCW. Like, that was going to be, he was going to be uh, the Jerry Lawler of WCW. This is going to be a long-term thing where you have Terry Funk, the legend as your announcer. And of course, you know, it fell apart really quickly. Okay. That makes more sense. Yeah. All right. So I also have a confession to make. You got to see how Lex Luger is dressed on this occasion. I had clothes like that in 1989, 1990. I also darker hair, but my hair wasn't much different than Luger's on this night. So Somehow I had a girlfriend. Anyway, that was a really cool conversation that we had with Chris Tabar. We're, our 60 Minutes is up this week, but we're going to have part two of that show next week. We're going to talk more about Clash of the Champions 10 and what a historic show it was. I want to thank Sean Goodwin for being our convivial co-host. I want to thank Chris Tabar for being such a great guest. Um, also, as usual, I want to thank Lou Kippelman. He does a lot more than you'd think. And we'll see you all for part two next week. This has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Falls basketball really stinks this year.